today we are continuing our Advent series, A Child is Born. The message for today is entitled, Everlasting Father. And this is the third name given to Jesus in Isaiah 9, verse 6. So we have one more message in our Advent series. And on next Sunday, Mike Tucker will speak on the Prince of Peace. And uh, as well, coming up in the next couple weeks, because I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but Christmas is on the way. Um, I hope by now you figured it out. Um, but uh, we have our Christmas Eve service on Friday, the De- Friday, December 24th, which conveniently this year is Christmas Eve and every year. Um, and then the last Sunday of 2021, December 26th, Boxing Day, if you are in Canada or the UK, uh, Nate will lead us in a doxology service. And we haven't done that in a while, but uh, we occasionally do those. It's a service where it's mostly music, mostly praise, um, with some shorter exhortations sprinkled in. Um, and so that's how we will end our year. Um, and actually, we'll end our year, December 31st, New Year's Eve, with a prayer meeting Uh, And all of you are invited. It's not going to be anything formal or fancy, uh, just a time of prayer on New Year's Eve. Um, And so no pressure to attend, but if you don't have plans and are interested in doing something like that, just want to invite you to be part of that. Uh, This morning as we begin, I want to apologize to our tech crew in advance who worked so hard, so tirelessly. Thank you, Grace. Um, There are a ton of scriptures to display this morning, so hang on tight. Um, But especially Grace, hang on. Uh, Let's begin by reading Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and we just ask that you would... Uh, be with us as we've gathered together. Your word promises that you will be with us. Where two or three are gathered, you're right here in the midst. And so we thank you that you are here. Uh, I ask that you would just reveal more of yourself to us today through the scriptures and through this message. Uh, give us ears to hear. Let us receive this and grow in grace and knowledge of you. And uh, Lord, I just thank you for all that you're doing during this this Christmas season, Lord, all the ways that you bless us, all the ways that you show your love. Um, And I just thank you for the reminder um, of what this time is all about as we look at your word, that this is all about this child who uh, came to earth to be the wonderful counselor, to be the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. We thank you in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So today we're talking about the third name, everlasting father. Now, this is another name that would have caused a little bit of consternation to uh, both the Jews and to Christians alike. If the child is the son of God, how can he also be called father? So we're going to unpack that today. As we begin, I want to reiterate something I said last week about the names given in Isaiah 9-6. These names describe who Jesus is, his character and personality, and the things that he would do. They express who Jesus is as he relates to us. And so they're not necessarily um, proper names. You know, Jesus isn't uh, called by his mother, Everlasting Father. That would be a little little bit odd. Um, But this describes Jesus and how he relates uh, to us. So perhaps the best place to start this morning with this name, Everlasting Father, is to explain what it's not. Uh, 
So, sorry, I just like heard random music and then I remembered Nate's working with the kids in the, uh, the kids' room. <laughs> a little distracted. I'm all right. We'll get there eventually, you know. So Isaiah in writing this is not explaining the role of the Messiah in the Godhead. He's not mixing up the persons of the Trinity. He's not mixing up God the Father and God the Son uh, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, the role of Jesus, God the Son, is not to be the person of the Father. They have distinct roles and distinct functions, though they are one in essence and nature. They are three persons, yet one being. They are in complete agreement in their purpose and what they think. And so the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. And likewise, it can be said of the Holy Spirit as well. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and so on. They are three distinct persons. So Isaiah is not confusing or mixing up the Trinity. And he's also not teaching modalism. So modalism is the teaching that there is one person who appears to us in three different forms or modes. This idea teaches that in the Old Testament, God is seen as the Father. In the Gospels, he's seen as Jesus. And after the ascension, he is seen as the Holy Spirit. One person, one God, revealed three different ways. Uh, This teaching is false. And denies clear evidence in the scriptures where we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All mentioned, such as at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, where the Father speaks. Jesus is being baptized and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. When Jesus prays to the Father in the gospel accounts, he's speaking to the Father, not to himself. And Hebrews 1.3, a passage we read last week, which shows that Jesus, after making purification for our sins, is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. So he's sitting next to God the Father. So let's look at what is being said about who Jesus is in the name Everlasting Father. And as we look at this name, we're going to break down each part separately. Uh, So we're going to start by looking at the word everlasting. So God is eternal. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all eternal. The Hebrew language expresses the idea of forever or eternity in two words. Ad, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is used in Isaiah 9-6 and elsewhere, and the word olam. And again, I could be way off with the pronunciation of that one too. Uh, We're going to look at a few places in scripture where these words are used. Psalm 90, 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah forty twenty eight. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So like the song that Nate sang earlier, he does not faint, he does not grow weary. So there's that everlasting idea in that he always endures. He's always got strength. He's always got energy. But also, the idea of eternity is in that. We're talking forever. He has existed forever. So last week, I mentioned several names for God, all related to his might. Um, Scripture gives us another name for God that is somewhat related to the names that we mentioned last week to describe his eternal nature. Here in these passages, the word olam is used. And so God is called El Olam, the everlasting God. And this word everlasting speaks of eternity, no beginning, no end. He is free from the constraints of time and is the very cause of time himself. 
Uh, this week I posted on Instagram, I can't remember what day it was, a little picture. Um, it wasn't really a picture. You can do those things where you put like a, just a plain background and some text. And I had posted something that Olive had done in the middle of the night. Um, sometimes I wonder who, you know, who this child is. She's not taking after me. Um, but in the middle of the night, we found out that, uh, I think it was Tuesday or something like that, she had gotten out her journal and was doing math equations. Um, and so in the morning, I was like, what, what were you doing last night? We saw your journal sitting by your nightlight, and um, it was open, your pencil was there, and she's like, oh, I was just doing some, some math work. I had it weighing on my mind, and I just wanted to make sure I got it all done. Now, mind you, she had no math homework from school. She just had this math work weighing on her mind. And so I shared that. Oh, by the way, she showed me the work, and it was all correct. Um, just various math equations in her journal. Um, and so I, you know, I posted that little story on Instagram, and some, a good friend of mine posted, like, man, before you know it, they're 27. And it just, like, struck me, like, time just flies by. You know, like, I'm celebrating this moment. You know, I wrote it down so I'd remember it. Um, you know, maybe in 20 years I'll pull this out and show it to her and, you know, all that good stuff. But time flies by. You know, on our TV we have this screensaver that rotates with photos. And there's this photo that always pops up. And it's the very first photo I took of Olive when she was born. And she's looking up at me. And she's kind of got this face of, like, what do you want? And uh, that look has never gone away. But here she is seven years later, and time has it's just been a blink, and here we are. But God is not constrained by time. He's outside of time. He's the very cause of time himself. He has no beginning and no end. Time is something that we deal with, and it does go by in an instant. Now, throughout the Old Testament, many things are described as ad or olam, or sometimes ad olam, forever and ever. God's name, God's word, his promises, his covenant, the line of David's throne, salvation, and God's love are all eternal, definite sureties, all because God himself is eternal. He is everlasting. And so this is what Isaiah is displaying. David Sunday, writing for the Gospel Coalition, what a name to have if you were a pastor, David Sunday, writes, Isaiah is highlighting the divine nature of the Messiah more than any other author. Isaiah loves to speak of eternity. We see it throughout his writings. In Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, he writes, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive, revive the heart of the contrite. God is eternal, but we're not just referring to God the Father, uh, though much of what we've looked at has been speaking of, of God the Father. What is true of the Father's eternal nature is also true of Jesus as well. In Revelation twenty two thirteen. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And this is used earlier in Revelation 1, but at that time it was spoken by God the Father. John 1, 
1 through 2. Speaking of Jesus, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus eternally exists, and along with the Father and the Holy Spirit was active in the creation of all things. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for, for us there is one God the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. When Isaiah writes of this child to be born 700 years from the time of his writing, he is saying that this child is the author of eternity. So this birth announcement is really unique, as I mentioned last week. It's a unique birth announcement, but it's announcing the birth of somebody who created time. Who created all things. The second part of this name given to Jesus is Father. This word Father is loaded with meaning. As we've already established, it's not speaking of the person of Jesus being mistaken for God the Father. Or that they're the same person of the Trinity revealed at different times. Isaiah is using this word Father to describe to us his actions and his character. In the ancient world, a king would often be described as a father to his people. It speaks of his protective care for his people. And with Jesus, this is certainly true. We're going to talk about that in a bit. Uh, But his fatherly care is also so much more than just protective. We're more than subjects to a king. We're more than servants. In fact, the language of the New Testament uses, um, the, the language that the New Testament uses is that of family. We are his children. The language of Father is deeper and much more telling of the Father's heart and the heart of Jesus. Sam Storms calls it a descriptive analogy pointing to Christ's character. He is fatherly, father-like in his treatment of us. And so there are several ways we see the fatherly heart of Christ, and we're going to talk about these this morning. First, his fatherly love. Second, he is the fatherly shepherd. Third, he offers fatherly security. And fourth, he reveals God the Father. So let's look at his fatherly love. Jesus loves us as the Father has loved him. We are invited into an everlasting, eternal love that existed before all of time. The three persons of the Trinity love one another perfectly. This is the love that Jesus has loved us with as well. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, So have I loved you. Abide in my love. So Jesus' love is shown in his longing to gather the people of Israel unto himself. He laments their rejection of him in Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And ultimately, the fatherly love of Jesus is most clearly displayed on the cross when Jesus himself gave himself as the perfect sacrifice for us. And he died in our place, bearing our sin and shame for the, and the wrath that we deserve to redeem us. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The next way we see Christ's fatherly heart is that he is the fatherly shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd and we are his sheep. I saw a video on 
some social media site. I can't remember which one it was. There's too many of them to keep track. I miss the days of MySpace. Um, but I saw this video. I saw this video of this shepherd, and he was picking up a sheep that had toppled over. And when a sheep falls over, it can't right itself. It can't pick itself back up. And so the shepherd has to come and pick him up and put him on his feet. But he can't just, like, pick him up and set him on his feet and go his merry way. Because when the sheep is on his back, it's like a buildup of blood and fluids and all this stuff, and it will eventually die, but it's disoriented, it's dizzy, and it will just topple right back over. So the shepherd grabs the sheep, picks it up, and he just, like, sits there holding the sheep for a while. Like, the most uncomfortable-looking thing. He's just, like, holding it, waiting for the sheep to, like... <clears throat> Get reoriented. And you can see it, like, in the sheep's face. He's just kind of like, You know, eventually the sheep puts its legs down, and it's good to go, and, you know, trots off, only to fall down again, probably five minutes later. (laughs) Jesus is the shepherd, and we are the sheep that topple over and can't pick ourselves back up. Micah the prophet prophesied about Jesus being the shepherd about 500 years before the incarnation of Jesus. Micah 5, 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John 10, 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not And who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge have I received from my Father. The shepherd gathers his sheep to himself. He feeds them, cares for them, picks them up when they fall over, and he protects them. Jesus gives us his sheep, his fatherly security, which is the third way we see his fatherly heart. He protects us, but not necessarily in the sense that many in the church world have taken it. Many have taken this to mean that they'll never be sick, they'll never experience any type of pain or trouble. Um, Maybe they have been told uh, that if they do experience sickness or experience any type of trouble, it's their fault. It's because their faith wasn't sufficient or uh, perhaps that they've sinned, and so therefore they've got the sniffles. And that's just simply not true. Because God is sovereign, he does physically protect us. But also because he is sovereign, when affliction comes, we can trust that it's because he has ordained it to happen for a good purpose. What I want to draw out today, though, is the fatherly security that Jesus gives us, namely the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the dreaded eternal security. It's not dreaded, though, because it's actually pretty beautiful. I prefer to call this the preservation of the saints because I believe this name more accurately describes what we see throughout Scripture, that Christ is preserving those he has saved. 
This doctrine teaches that those who are saved, those who have believed the good news of Jesus Christ, will be kept or preserved by the power of the Holy Spirit forever. This doesn't mean that we will not stumble. And at times, as the Westminster Shorter Confession says, struggle grievously with sin, we, we will. Or that we won't wander for a season. But ultimately, those that are his will be kept by him. Jesus shows his fatherly protection towards his children by keeping them. Jesus says in John 6:37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Again, Jesus speaking in John 10:28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says in Ephesians 1:13 and 14, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of our inheritance, eternal life. It is a guaranteed promise based on the Holy Spirit. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And to the Corinthians, he writes in 1 Corinthians 1.8-9, Thanking God that it is Jesus who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we see throughout the New Testament, time and time again, where Scripture tells us that Jesus is protecting, he's securing, and he's sustaining his own. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, began the good work. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He will keep us by his power. The same power that is right now holding the very universe together is more than able to keep you. And so Jesus shows his fatherly heart by loving us, shepherding us, and securing us. And lastly, he reveals the Father. Jesus, the Messiah, is the only one who can reveal God's fatherly character to us, for he is one in nature and essence with the Father. Because God the Son and God the Father share their essence and nature, their very character, we can be assured that what we see coming from the heart of Christ is what comes from the heart of the Father. Jesus, in coming to earth for the purpose of dying for the forgiveness of sins of those who believe, reveals the plan and purpose of the Godhead. Jesus reveals the Father. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. So this speaks of, excuse me, their being of one heart, sharing in nature, united in purpose. This does not mean that they're the same person. Jumping down a few verses in chapter 10, uh, Jesus The setting for all of this happening in these verses is that he's about to be stoned for claiming to be the Son of God. And he says in verses 37 and 38, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. A few chapters over in John 14, 9 through 10, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? One of the twelve, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does this work. The purpose in what Jesus is saying in these passages is to show that if you want to know what the Father is like, look to Christ. If you want to know what the Father's heart is towards you, look at Jesus. Jesus is the perfect image of God, the exact representation of his being. Jesus reveals the Father, and he makes him known to us. Jesus is not God the Father, but he is the everlasting Father. His heart to us is fatherly. His character displayed is the same character of God the Father. So how do we experience this fatherly heart? Well, first, there's a problem. We've sinned. We're born dead in our sins and trespasses, according to Ephesians 2.1. And because of this sin, we're cut off. We, we are estranged from the Father. We are far off. And because we are cut off due to our sin, we need to be adopted into this family in order to partake of this relationship. I was listening to something from Sinclair Ferguson the other day, and he spoke of this word in the Welsh language, and I don't speak Welsh, so forgive the likely mispronunciation, but it's this word, hirioth, H-I-R-A-E-T-H, which for a Welsh word is pretty short. Sinclair said the Welsh have a word for feeling far away from home, longing for home, hirioth. There is a hirioth of the human soul, a longing for home, and the gospel tells us it is the gospel tells us how it is that we can come home. Our Lord Jesus tasted the depths of Hirioth, the soul distress, the disturbance of his whole being that he experienced, that we might, by his homesickness, come from our homesickness in the far country to the heavenly Father. This Hirioth, this longing for home, can only happen in a person as the Holy Spirit dwell, um, draws them. And Jesus tasted this suffering. He died and was buried, but he rose again, and through that the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through this good news, Jesus is gathering to himself a family, and you can be brought home. Jesus, the everlasting Father, loves you with an everlasting love. He will shepherd you, he will protect you, and sustain you, and ultimately, he will bring you before God the Father. Not just as another servant, but as a son or a daughter. He'll bring you home. And that's what this name is all about. You can rejoice that it's not a momentary, momentary fatherly heart. A temporary fatherly heart. I don't even really know what that would look like. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe the father that you've had in your life didn't love you in a sacrificial way. Maybe you only saw brief glimpses of this type of love. But this is the type of love that God has for you. It's everlasting. It's eternal. Forever and ever. It doesn't grow faint. It doesn't grow weary. Jesus is not tired of you. When you sin and when you struggle, he doesn't grow weary of you. He's not like, I've had my fill. 
I'm done. He will in no ways cast you out. Charles Spurgeon said, there is no unfathering Christ and there is no unchilding us. Now, I've heard this story and I've shared it before, but I figured it was a fitting story. I heard it told by Brian Lorette, um, a pastor, about his father, Crawford Lorette. And uh, so Crawford uh, is as well a, a pastor, and I think he's in the Atlanta area. And uh, he shared this story, or Brian shared it with him. Uh, and basically what happened is Crawford met with his attorney to update his will. Um, at various times, you need to do that if, if you have that. Um, you know, when you have more children, you need to update that and all that good stuff. Um, so the lawyer met with him and was like, you know, Crawford, I'm so glad you've decided to meet with me and update your will. It's good that you do this. Uh, most people ignore it, so I'm glad that you're here. We can get this updated, taken care of. He's like, but before we begin, I just want to mention to you one thing, just as means of reminder. Um, and just for backstory, Crawford has an adopted daughter. Um, but he, he mentioned her and he said, your adopted daughter. I don't know what her name is, but um, I just need to tell you, you can write out of your will any of your biological children. You can remove them at any time. But according to Georgia law, you cannot remove your adopted daughter. Her inheritance is guaranteed. There's nothing that can be done that can remove her from receiving an inheritance from you. Brothers and sisters, we're adopted into the family of God. And that guarantee cannot be removed. That inheritance is yours. Have you believed the good news? Have you trusted Christ for your salvation? If so, then believer, you are that secure. You may wander for a time. You may struggle even grievously with sin. But you are secure. For Christ to lose you, as Dane Ortland writes, Christ himself would have to be pulled out of heaven and put back in the grave. His death and resurrection make it just for Christ to never cast out his own, no matter how often they fall. If you're here today and you've not tasted and seen of this amazing love offered freely by Jesus Christ, I invite you today to believe the good news of what Jesus has done for you. He offers you this everlasting love freely because of what he did on the cross. In that is the forgiveness of sins and adoption into this wonderful family. And believer, if you are weary and tired, longing for home, and maybe you are struggling this morning, maybe you are wandering, I invite you to be refreshed and reminded of the fatherly heart. When the prodigal returned, he didn't even get his words out before the father embraced him. The father came running to him. And so I just want to remind you today that the father loves you with an everlasting love. He will not cast you out. He will keep you. He will guard you and present you as blameless before the father. You are his child forever and there are no goodbyes with him. Nothing can separate you from his love or from his heart. And so I want to close 
this morning with scripture that we're likely familiar with. And it is full of eternal security. Romans eight twenty eight through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the everlasting Father Isaiah is speaking of, and nothing can separate you from the fatherly heart of God. Let's pray. Everlasting Father, we thank you for this incredible love that you have poured out lavishly upon us through Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you that you are faithful even when we are faithless and that you will establish and guard us against the evil one. Lord, as the scriptures say, make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all so that our hearts may be established blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Thank you that you so love the world as to give your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In the name of Jesus, our wonderful Counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, we pray. Amen.